This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about the money, boys! Here we go again. The world's changing, boys. Time we change with it. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we explore film series one movie at a time. I'm your host, Gabe Green, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, James Hamrick. What's up, dude? Nothing much. What's going on? I, I feel uh, Ill, ill-prepared, maybe just by a hair for this episode. I completely forgot we were recording on Monday and not Tuesday last night. Uh, <laughs> That's my fault. Uh, no, it's, it's... Who's that? Oh, yeah. Sorry, before I go into my woes, let's introduce my apologies. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we are currently talking about uh, Spider-Man Homecoming in our retrospective on the MCU. And to help us talk about that, we are joined by uh, Drew Dodgen of the Cellcast. Welcome to Franchise Fatigue, man. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Yeah. And so you just want to you know, briefly introduce yourself to our listeners and uh, tell them what your show is all about? Sure thing. Uh, my name is Drew Dodgen. I am a graphic designer and I have been watching cartoons for entirely too long. Uh, and because of that, me and a friend I go to church with started a podcast about a couple months ago called The Cellcast, where we review uh, animated movies, uh, both 2D, 3D. We've actually finally got some stop motion in there now. Country of origin doesn't really matter, though we tend to focus on America just because Disney is a thing. Because we're the best. Yeah. Well, you have done some anime, at least. So, But uh, yeah, that's essentially it. We... We're in the middle of uh, Miyazaki month at the moment, but I'll get more on that later. Ah, nice. I have been on a Miyazaki kick lately. I, I've caught up with all his films that have just the last one, The Wind Rises, to watch, and then I will have officially seen all his films. And I have not gotten to that one He's yet. pretty good. Yeah. there, There's a reason why the non-anime fans like Miyazaki. I'll grant you that. <laughs> like me, people like me. Hey, ain't nothing wrong with it. Everybody has their own tastes, even if they're wrong. <laughs> Let's just talk about that now. <laughs> Reasons why I hate anime. No, uh, Dad, I, yeah, I so, understand different country, different set of looking at things. It's just, if you're not used to it, you're not used to it. It's fine. And before we move into the main discussion, guys, I want to ask you, if you enjoy the show, to please uh, head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. We would very much appreciate it. And uh, if you want to head over to Facebook, you can give us a like there and leave feedback that could be read on the show. And speaking of said feedback, and on Facebook, Samuel said, pretty good and fun Spider-Man film. At the time, before Spider-Verse and Far From Home, I said it was the most sp- fun Spider-Man film, although most fun doesn't necessarily equal best overall. Tom Holland is still no Tobey Maguire, but he's pretty good in his own right. Uh, he's pretty much perfect, but whatever. No comment. <laughs> Same Dodson said, very low in the ranks for me in the MCU. The plot and tone were very lackluster and the action was just atrocious. I will say that Vulture was an incredibly well-written character and that the car scene is still as terrifying as ever. The best thing Watts brought to the table was the high school dynamic between Peter and his classmates. His inner John Hughes was shining in those moments, which I, lo- which I loved. Overall, an average MCU movie and a mess spider mo- or Spidey movie. And uh... So going into a bit of behind-the-scenes information on this film, uh, following the rather poor reception of The Amazing Spider-Man 2 in 2014... Disney and Sony started working towards a deal that would allow Spider-Man to join the MCU. The deal was announced in February of 2015. It would allow Marvel to produce films within the MCU uh, that would be primarily funded and distributed by Sony, uh, while Marvel would have the primary creative control and then could put uh, the character in the team-up films, just Civil War and Avengers Infinity War and Endgame and all that. Uh, Marvel would receive uh, only 5% of the gross from the solo films, but the full gross of the team-up films. And and Sony would get the rest of the money off those movies. 
Uh, many different directors were considered for the film. Uh, the first one uh, offered the role was Drew Goddard, who is he's the uh, creator of the Marvel Netflix uh, Daredevil series. And he had also been attached to direct the Sinister Six film that uh, Sony was hoping to get off the ground. And they were setting it up in the Amazing Spider-Man 2. Is he the Cabin in the Woods director? Yes, he is. Okay. I knew that name was familiar. Kind of, he's also a big Joss Whedon collaborator. He also he also wrote uh, what's the uh, the Ridley Scott space uh, Mars movie? Um, oh, The Martian. The Martian. Yeah, he was going to direct that too for a while, hmm. but he declined. Uh, other directors considered were Jonathan Levine, who had also been considered for Doctor Strange, Ted Melfi of Hidden Figures, Jason Moore from Pitch Perfect, uh, Jared Hess of Napoleon Dynamite and Nacho <laughs> Libre, which I could actually see him uh, working in this in this kind of tone. Yeah. I definitely could. Uh, and then the, the duo of John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein of uh, Game Night and the vac- Vacation movie uh, were also they were considered to to direct, but eventually they ended up writing. The actual directing job ultimately went to John Watts of such horror films and thrillers as Clown and Cop Car. So there are six writers in total credited, and I'm a little confused about this because like there's I couldn't find any information as far as like usually you'll have a writer a writing team and come in. You know, they'll leave the project, then another writer, then another writer. I want to, part of me thinks this might have been like a writer's room kind of thing because it's just like there's just a whole bunch of writers. And you look at the film, and this feels like such a singular vision. I don't feel any, any kind of, you know, push and pull and kind of and just weird aspects like you usually have when you have six writers on a movie. But who knows? Um, so for the writers, you have, uh, John Watts is, is a credited writer. Daly and Goldstein, they also have a story by credit. Um, so I'm thinking they're the primary writers. Christopher Ford, um, he's a co-writer of Watts. He's written, a bunch, written on a bunch of his previous films with him. And then the writing duo of Chris McKenna and Eric Summers, uh, who came over from Community, and they've done a bunch of work on a bunch of different MCU films. Also, a Marvel staff writer, Eric Pearson, who, uh, co- who wrote all the one-shots, um, he also did some uncredited work on the film. So there's a whole bunch of writers, and it's kind of a miracle that it doesn't feel like it. Yeah. And uh, since the casting and characterization for Peter Parker was being established by the Russo brothers on Civil War, uh, once uh, John Watts came on, he would he would join the Russos during filming for Civil War to help uh, keep the fe- make sure the feel for the characters right as he was in pre-production. And for the cinematography, Ron Howard's longtime DP, Salvatore Totino, uh, was hired. For the cast, like you said, obviously... Um... Holland had already appeared in Civil War. I don't remember if we actually talked about the, like the process that he went through, um, for Civil War, where he didn't find out until he looked on Instagram. Like that's how he found out about his him him getting the role, or if uh, like the auditions were going on during In the Heart of the Sea, where he and John Bernthal were like helping each other audition for their respective Marvel roles. Yeah. But yeah, th- this movie fortunately didn't have to try to spend time casting this because he was able to come over from Civil War. We're gonna, I'm gonna go through the cast a little bit differently. I'm not gonna just read through every single person here, uh, but I do want to just k- kind of highlight things that I, I did find a bit interesting. Um, for the character of Adrian Toomes, uh, they hired uh, Michael Keaton, and John Watts actually like very much wanted a a memorable villain. He wanted somebody. He didn't want like a stock villain uh, or a villain who could work in any of the other movies. He wanted someone uh, that he described more as a regular guy. And he actually cited he wanted someone who felt closer to John C. Riley's Nova Corpsman from uh, Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy than a Thanos or an Ultron. Speaking uh, of which, I'm mad that he didn't appear in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. 
He's got to come back. Well, I'm afraid he's dead. You better not be. Man, Xandor's well, gone. Well, even if he's... Uh, now you're making me sad. <laughs> I know. I, I really, really liked him. That he, shot of him hugging his wife and his kid can't be for nothing. I really... Uh, oh, did he? Did Thanos, like, slaughter half the population and all, like, either his wife and kid are dead or... That's uh, too painful to think about. Go on, go on. Uh, Donald Glover was cast as Aaron Davis, and I think we all kind of know that character a little bit more now after Into the Spider-Verse. Um, what was kind of just like, oh, look, it's Donald Glover. I really like him. Is now like, oh, man, what are they setting up? You know, we know who his nephew is now. Um, so apparently, uh, and I think it's pretty obvious, Feige, Feige is setting up potentially something um you know he was very but the cr- thing is sony would have already been in deep into production of spider-verse at this, at this point and this is 2017 or released in 2017 so you're talking 2016 2015 they but being an animated film those things take forever but is there so is there any thing in the contract that keeps them from being able to have like the same character in the two different universes well i think well this pro i mean there's probably kind of a handshake uh, deal with Sony that they can they get to approve everything since it's yeah still kind of their movie because I don't really see this being a negative for either party. Um, just like mutual growth and awareness of a character is probably good for both sides. Um, Marissa Tomei as a May Parker, uh, and of course there was a lot of backlash to this casting. <laughs> this is maybe one of the only times. That uh, the nerds of the internet gathered around in protest of an actress being cast or uh, being upset that the actress cast was too attractive. <laughs> I don't know of any other moment. Uh, but uh, Civil or Stephen McFeely said that uh, the reason that they did this is because they wanted this to feel as naturalistic as possible. Uh, his quote is. Um, that's partly why his aunt isn't 80 years old. If she's the sister of his dead mother, why does she have to be two generations ahead? Um, so they wanted a, they wanted a character that could feel like, like this, this is the sister of a mother who would be around the age of his mother, you know? And uh, I think that kind of works well in making all of the dynamics, especially between the two of them feel feel a bit more relatable, a bit more realistic. And apparently Tomei was given a, a lot of, like, free reign in how to, like, define the character. Like, she was allowed to bring her own personality and, and quirks to it. So in addition to, like, the typical reshoots that these bigger budget films go through, uh, all of the, the Captain America PSAs were actually done as a part of those reshoots. And <laughs> those are, like, those are really, really fun to just watch in quick succession. Whenever I remember seeing it in the theater, whenever that post credit scene came up, there was like half of the audience just groaned and was genuinely annoyed, and the other half thought it was the greatest thing ever. That divide made it the greatest thing ever. For the score of this film, uh, the composer was Michael Giacchino, uh, and this is actually revealed by accident by Kevin Feige, who is actually promoting Doctor Strange in November of 2016, talking about Michael Giacchino for that score. And through the conversation, he accidentally let the cat out of the bag that Giacchino was uh, coming back to the MCU for Homecoming. Uh, and he would later confirm that himself. He's always a good choice. Yeah, never never really going wrong there. Also, I'm sure everybody who's seen the movie knows and recognizes. Uh, but the, the spider theme returned 
uh, that was a decision that Giacchino really wanted to make sure happened here, uh, is to open it with that classic theme. The film had its uh, world premiere at the TCL Chinese Theater in Hollywood on June 28th, 2017. Was this the first year that they released three movies in in one year? I believe so, yeah. All right. Since you are our guest, Drew, I will mm-hmm. start first. Uh, do you remember your first time seeing this film? Uh, what did you think of it then? And have your thoughts ev- on it evolved at all in the years since? Uh, I do remember my first viewing. It was... Back, was it two or three years ago that movie came out? 2017, I believe. Yeah, I was on a very much big Marvel high at that time. In fact, I think I fought y'all over uh, Guardians 2 over that, and that was <laughs> I was maybe a little crazy on that one, looking back. Uh, but Spider-Man, uh, I was really excited looking forward to that one because I was curious how Marvel would handle it. I had not been entirely happy with Andrew Garfield's run as peter you and a whole bunch of other people (laughs) yeah especially since i kind of saw gwen stacy's demise coming from about two movies away (laughs) (laughs) that scene still gets me though oh it does i'm not saying it's not done good it's just i knew it was coming the minute she showed up on screen in the first one (laughs) maybe that's just because i'm read too many comic books i don't know but uh I was looking forward to seeing how Tom Holland would do a full movie because I enjoyed what I had seen in Civil War. I remember going to watch it in, in a, with my mom up in a Tyler at Times Square and loving the heck out of it. I thought the Captain America stuff was a pretty good way to handle you know how Captain America would have been handled at that point. Uh, I remember enjoying the movie. It was fun. Looking back on it and having seen some sub- subsequent viewings, there's some good parts in there, but there's eh, it's didn't really grow in my appreciation. I'll put it that way. Uh, uh, so, James, uh, what was your uh, has what has your uh, history with this film been like? Uh, so, I remember my first viewing with it. Uh, I went in really excited because I actually remember exactly where I was whenever I found out that. Spidey was brought back into the MCU. I know we recorded on the Amazing Spider-Man, but I don't. Were you part of the crowd that was really unhappy with that, with, with where that series was uh, going? Or? I really enjoyed. So we, I remember. Uh, I don't think my opinions on it have changed since we recorded. I remember really, really liking the first one, thinking the second one was mostly bad, except for like the actual leads, like the two of them together and their chemistry was fantastic. But I was not super over the moon with where that series was headed. Uh, I I had no interest at all in the Sinister Six movie they were building to. Um, <laughs> yeah, I my excitement for that series, I mean, really hit its valley. Uh, so I was definitely one of the people who was incredibly excited whenever um, they got the rights to include him in the movies. And I loved Holland in Civil War. Um, so I went in this movie incredibly excited, uh, and I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I was excited, you know, after being let down with, um, with how they handled freaking Mads Mikkelsen in Doctor (laughs) Strange, I was like, don't you dare do the same to Michael Keaton. Uh, and they didn't. I just remember walking away thinking like, well, I need to watch it again to really enjoy the entirety of the movie. But all I can think about right now is we got another good MCU villain. They didn't waste Keaton. Um, And I've actually had a a, a growing relationship with this film since because I really enjoyed it that first time. Um, 
But it wasn't until my rewatch going into Infinity War that I realized just how much uh, I really loved it. Um, I think on the on the most recent viewing, it was just like the montage of him in the neighborhood, where I was like, "This is this is kind of doing the thing that the MCU doesn't always do." Uh, and that it makes sense based on the characters, but I, I really like it when the world feels alive beyond mm-hmm. the characters, you know, and, uh, and just with the, the world ending stakes and the, you know, pl- you know, traveling between planets, there's not always the best opportunity to do that. But I, because of that, I really enjoyed like, Hey, let's go talk to the sandwich guy. Let's go, let's talk to this guy who's shouting at him to do a flip. <laughs> you know, he's just, these little montages just went, it, it made the world feel alive again yeah. like there's there are people here beyond just these faces um and so yeah i've i've actually grown to really love this movie more and more with every rewatch yeah so um i remember being fairly surprised when you know they announced yet another reboot of the character but i'm i'm always the optimist when it comes to upcoming films so i was like okay it's gonna be awesome and then civil war was awesome and i love spider-man in that so i was definitely looking forward to this film i remember really enjoying it i do Remember, uh, as often happens with new when new films come out, everyone's like, oh my gosh, this is the best thing ever. All previous iterations have an absolute garbage in comparison. And so I I, I kind of got – I think you you were kind of in this as well, James. We were kind of caught up like, no, Tobey Maguire is still pretty good, okay? Like Sam Raimi made some awesome films back then. You better, you better respect those as well. Turns out Spider-Man 1 and 2 are freaking masterpieces, okay? Everybody shut up. Yeah, so it's like I really like this film – I never said I they weren't. Kind of a, no, I'm not talking. You just kind of the internet, the yeah. world. There was I there got was a of, loud yeah, area of the internet that was very much like, oh, finally, be, you know, good Spider-Man movies because the Raimi movies have really shown their age. And, and I, it was, I think, a similar thing that like, happened to Rogue One. Be like, oh my gosh, this is so much better than the Force Awakens. Like, no, the Force Awakens is freaking awesome. And so, like, I kind of it took me a, a little while to kind of really get into the groove of appreciating this film. Some of my complaints about it still stand, but. It definitely has grown on me. I'm just moving to the the main film. Just, I think the one thing that always stands out to everybody is this this film's tone, the John Hughes esque high school style. Um, this is this is the first one that's really felt like a high school film. Where, yes, it's been an element in all in all you know the the at least the two previous first films of each series, but. It, now, it here it really feels like part of the lifeblood of the film, and the story is completely intertwined with that. Uh, at least, at least for me. How how successful do y'all do you guys think uh, this entire high school John Hughes aesthetic was with this film? I think it worked pretty well. I mean, it's, there's not a whole it's not as much as I remember it going looking back on it, but of course you got the whole Ferris Bueller section there that I thought was admittedly I, I was thinking, oh look, this is like Ferris Bueller, and then <laughs> oh look, there's a scene from Ferris Bueller. Uh, but yeah, the John Hughes-esque of, uh, of it being a coming-of-age story, uh, I think fit this perfectly well, because, I mean, he is still just a kid who just got thrown into, uh, essentially the world of the Avengers, and it, I think they handled it beautifully, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I actually haven't seen any John Hughes films aside from, uh, Trains, Planes, and Automobiles, and then Home Alone, which he wrote. Uh, so I, I actually don't really have much of a point of reference for the entire teen movies that he kind of genre that he kind of i don't know if he created it but you know popularized um but just me you know coming coming in from the outside someone who doesn't really watch a lot of that type i really enjoy it um i think what james said about 
it feels like we're just dropped into a pre-existing world. There's all these unique character mm-hmm. dynamics and like it just it feels like you know this I think I said about previous films, you know, this this world existed before we got here. It's going to keep on existing. You know, Ned and Peter are going to be building, you know, uh Star Wars Lego sets long after the movie stops. It it, it just it just feels like a real world and, and and I think, you know, that, that kind of grounded tone, it's interesting, like, it has a very grounded, I think, visual aesthetic and overall tone, but it's also incredibly light and I, I want to say fluffy, but I think that, that kind of has like a ne- negative connotation of being of it being kind of empty, but I don't, like, this film is just fluffy, it's it's fun, it's it's really entertaining from moment to moment. I just, I just like being here, um, like, even when the story is not, maybe not, not as deep as I would like. It's just a pleasant experience to watch. Yeah, I think one of the like the opening scenes with him at the high school where you, you see the first footage of like their school news uh, and you first see Flash. At first, you know, I was like, wow, this whenever they announced who they cast as Flash, I was like, what are they doing? <laughs> and then I watched. He's, he's the guy from uh, Grand Budapest yeah. Hotel, like this really meek, diminutive guy. Like, no, like, what? What? Do they, do they, what's going on here? And it's like, no, this is perfect. Like, this is this is the modern bully. Like the party, just w- with all of mm-hmm. his antics there and stuff, with the with the mic and the sound effects. It it feels <laughs> like, and this is where I'll give you know, I don't know, give the edge over the Raimi movies because I think the high school in the Raimi movies is very much like. Here is the Hollywood version of what a high school looks like, you know. It's like this. It's like the Scream high schools. Yeah, it's like very nineties. Yeah, this is kind of exaggerated thing, but this is this felt very modern and modern in a good way. Not like here is you know forty year old director trying to channel what a high school looks like. He's like, no, this feels like. Like with just the with their whole banter and the school news are like thanks I already have a date and then like the slow zoom in on his I'm like okay this is <laughs> like I've seen these YouTube videos made by these fourteen year olds you know yeah yeah and we we've already mentioned uh, Tom Holland a little bit but uh what are you guys thoughts on him I think he handles the the character very well I mean th- one of the, while I do like Tobey Maguire's Peter Parker the problem only problem I really have with it is ironically he's not quippy enough for the character and but tom holland has got that in spades all of his quips seem natural they never seem forced or at least very rarely seem forced uh it's i mean he works good for the character especially someone who's just uh who's young and is still learning about the world as much as he is learning about you know the superheroes he handles the character well i can believe him both as peter parker and spider-man so Mm -hmm. which is not something every one can say yeah the the thing that i i find most incredible about his performance is just the boundless childlike enthusiasm that the character has and i think that could easily come off as kind of forced and a little annoying if it wasn't so well handled but it just it it just works he's just he's just a bundle of energy and whenever he's on screen he's just driving everything and it's kind of incredible to watch and i think the the amazing thing on top of that is that you know not only is he such a charismatic and likable likable performer but i think he is a incredible dramatic actor as well um I mean, like, I, I don't think it's for no reason that the Russos have hired him to play like a drug drug addicted bank robber in you know in their next film. Like, 
and you see that in moments throughout this film, like whenever it gets serious and you, he's just like sitting there trying not to cry as the world crumbles around him. And you just like, your heart breaks for the kid. I think he, I think he's, you know, he, he is kind of the, the consummate movie star. He has the charisma. You, you know, he, he owns the screen. You know, he has, he has chemistry with everyone around him. Plus, you know, he can knock your socks off with the drama as well. So he's, I think he's just fantastic. Yeah, to me, honest for for this character, I I think he's perfect. Like I I really have no issue at all with him. Uh, watching it uh, today, my sister was in, in the room whenever I was watching today, and there was a line that he said, and I just remember turning to him and be like, "He sounds like he's fourteen or fifteen. Like he just, it's it just the pitch in his voice, the the cadence, the way he talks, like just the way his voice rises about something he's excited about, uh, or like and a great American accent yeah, to." Mm-hmm. this is like this whenever i found out he was an american that was like one of the most mind-blowing moments for me because it is spot on um i just like the moment whenever whenever ned is like grilling about like, can you do this can you do this and he, he asks me like can you lay eggs he just kind of like that really light chuckle he's like no it just it it feels so realistic in the moment to like to that age to that kind of person um so it's just it's so like you know he plays the awkward kind of but not like just like overly awkward it's just like this is what an awkward person in this high school would look like you know uh it's not this this exaggerated version that we that you see in most of these kinds of movies and then yeah like you said his his uh dramatic acting is amazing i think one of the greatest moments of like real drama and tension and just like one of, one of the most visceral emotional reactions i've had in any mc in mcu film is whenever he's trapped under the rubble and he's just mm. screaming like there is that movie just breaks out of any of the just the lightness of the film and you feel guilty for even that's watching. exactly what it's i was so gonna say painful. that's and it's mm-hmm. so weird because i found out that it, with you saying that i'm clearly not the only person who felt that because i used that exact same way of putting it when the movie was done because we were talking about everything we loved and i said like it felt weird being in the moment that i'm this 20 something year old person paying money to go and watch the scene of this 14 year old kid just trapped and screaming i'm 16 16 sorry sorry but like <laughs> it felt so realistic it felt like we just Hey, there's here's this security footage, you know, um, and yeah, it, it was it was just re- uncomfortable in the best kind of way, uh, and that's not always something you get in these kinds of movies. And so I just I thought that like you know they they really struck gold with Holland for me. Yeah, and speaking of that scene, like I think John Watts, like for how light and fluffy and fun this movie is, I think he has some pretty incredible dramatic and, you know, uh, and thriller chops. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to circle around and have some criticism of his direction. But there are some moments of this film, like that moment, where it's just, it's just such raw filmmaking that shows so much confidence. And, and just the, mo- the moments of pathos where it's, you know, conversations between, um, Tom and Robert Downey Jr. like on the roof of the building after the uh, after the, the ferry incident, where Tony's really having to come up, you know come out and give him as he says later some you know, some tough love motivation, and mm-hmm. 
It, it's it, again, it's another one of those scenes that's just awkward. I was I was watching this last time, and I was like getting flashbacks at times, I, like as a kid when I was in trouble with my parents. Like, it, 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 I was getting like uncomfortable. Like, I I know that feeling, and I hate it. And he was able to you know, to bring that out of me, which is just great. Yeah. And I I do want to talk a bit about John Watts. Um, I. Th- because I, I have like equal parts praises and criticism for him here. I think in the praise section, I think he we talked about he he gives this film a very strong sense of place. You know all all the characters. But I think he, the the ground level view that he chose to shoot this film with. I think he uses a lot of live action plates, which is something I, I've been wishing that Marvel films would do a lot more of. And I feel like most of most of this movie feels very real and tangible even though i think the, the spider-man cgi double itself kind of feels weightless and rubbery at times like the environments he's interacting with always feel really real and all pretty much the entire movie feels like he just put a camera in the streets of a city or new york city and just filmed and that that use of usage of live action plays for most of the most of the even the action sequence i think again, you know, really goes to give this film that very grounded street level feeling and, and, you know, take, you know, takes that feeling of stepping into a very real neighborhood, neighborhood, a whole nother step. And I think it was a very necessary ingredient in this movie. Yeah. I, I have similar issues with, with uh, the CGI double itself. Um, like just whenever he's like swinging by, just be like, Hey, how's everybody going? Just like coming up and down. It, it looks just like it exists separate from the that that world you know uh you can tell mm-hmm. it's just it's moving a bit differently but even with that being said there's there's a very grounded sense to this movie like maybe it's maybe it's heightened just because you know at this point we're and it's crazy we haven't even acknowledged like we're we're already in phase three of the mc that's that's so weird this this uh series on franchise fatigue is going by super fast when did it phase three officially start? Was it was that Civil War? Civil Ant-Man? War, I think, is the Wait, first one. Yeah, Ant Man was the final film of, of phase, phase two. two right? yeah. Yeah. yeah, but uh, maybe it's just because at this point, you know, we've introduced so many cosmic elements, and uh, and it's just gotten like so big. And you know, we're on the heels of Doctor Strange and all of the craziness there, but just like Dormammu, <laughs> I've the, come the to bargain. Giant CGI worlds and stuff, but it it is cool to be back in a movie that feels real like one the the fight with the the people stealing all the money like dressed as the avengers and stuff just mm-hmm. little things like the bills getting scattered you know like as mm-hmm. they're fighting there that sense of like real world objects interacting in the scenes in ways that make it feel realistic um so i i did kind of enjoy scaling it down a little bit and just it it feeling bit more tangible i guess yeah let's move back to some of the character stuff i think you know there's a very rich tapestry of characters um here's an interesting a common complaint i have heard about these this film and you know the, the avengers films that uh, spider-man appears in as well as far from home is that i've heard a lot of people complaining about you know the prevalence of tony stark and the and the significance that he has been given in Peter Parker's life in, in this, this iteration of the character. Is that a thing that has bothered either of you? I'm going to be honest. It really doesn't because it feels like in many ways, he's taking the uncle Ben role to me. Mm-hmm. Cause admittedly with this version of Spider-Man, we don't get to see the whole 
uh, origin story with him getting bitten by the spider and all that, because, hey, we already know that, and it's really not important in the grand scheme of things anyway, at least not yet. Uh, but I, I just love how so far you see uh, Tony Stark pretty much acting like Uncle Ben all the way up even to Endgame, where, you know, spoiler alert, we lose him, and then uh, all with with not not to get too far into Far From Home, but how we're that's him having to deal with the fact that, you know, he doesn't have that mentor anymore. So really, Tony Stark being so prevalent doesn't mess with me too much, it, but it's just something that's there. Yeah. Yeah, I I could never imagine complaining about it just for me. And that's also because, I don't know, I, I think I'm far less cynical than a lot of people about these kind of things because I understand <laughs> the idea of just, oh, He's he's here because it's RDJ, and you know we we want to see more and more of him. But honestly, even if that were the case, and I'm not saying it's not, and who even, doesn't? <laughs> well, there's that, and also it's like let's whenever it comes to film, I want to look at it in this vacuum. Like we can talk. I I would happily have conversations about you know the industry itself and what drives things. But whenever I, I want to leave all of that at the door whenever I actually talk about the movies themselves. And so when it comes to talking about his inclusion here, I want to shut up all of the noise surrounding it and say, well, how does he affect this it, It's film? interesting you say that because like, it was the industry that didn't even want to- Robert Downey Jr. in Civil War. And it was the artists who had to fight back and you know force that. And that's yeah. because these artists understand story. Because when you actually look at him in this film uh, – I what why I'm so okay with it both here and with Infinity War and Endgame and what they do with him in uh uh or you know with the exclusion of him in Far From Home it's so seamlessly blended into the story like it's so organic that it's like it is the heart of this story and maybe that's what people complain about that the heart of the story is so attached to Robert Downey Jr but to me the reason why i could never complain about that is cuz that's never been at the expense of peter though like peter as a character is more compelling than he would have been to me um well i'm sure there would have been another way to tell the story equally as compelling or or whatever but just with this particular story I just think he really adds a lot here. And he, he's still 100% supporting. And that's also kind of cool is to see Tony Stark here as a character exist to prop up like the the arc of another character, you know. And what's even cooler is I think that, you know, Stark himself gets good growth out of this. You know, this is him coming off of Civil War, you know, to where he was very deeply damaged and broken. And like, there's a moment in the film where you can see him like holding his arm that he injured in Civil War, kind of the way he was in that movie, and he still got the bruises on his face in the beginning. And I think you know him probably feeling very lost. You know, he lost the losing all the Avengers, probably losing a lot a lot of his purpose, and now he's pouring himself into this kid. You know, he you know him not having a father figure, trying trying very awkwardly and, and stumbling a lot to try and provide some kind of guidance so that this kid is not going to make the lifetime mistakes that he made. And so like we get Tony Stark, he like Tony Stark is not just here for Peter. Mm-hmm. Peter is not just here for Stark. It's, it's, it's a, it's good drama. You know, both of them are growing and you know getting something out of it. And something that I really enjoy is that the, the writers are able to look at Stark's character and not be like, okay, well, 
we're gonna like we'll let him keep his rdj quips but we're gonna use him the way we need to like it feels like it's the exact same voice of this character i, I mean I, I he probably even up till now is, is like you know rewriting his own lines on set yeah probably I, I, yeah kinda, it's, yeah. it's yeah. definitely already he's he is kind of the character um but even with that like even beyond just like the specific voice and the way he like his lines but like big picture like character arc thing it's just it feels so perfectly in line uh what we've talked about through this series with with him is just how reactionary of a character he is and they maintain that here where he's constant like in the he's in one movie he is defined by the flaws of the previous film like every sequel or a new film that has him in it, he's usually, like, his character is defined by trying to correct whatever he did wrong from the last one. And so and here we... I feel like this is probably the first step of positive growth since, like, Iron Man 3. Yeah. And so now... Yeah, we I'd actually, agree with that. Yeah, so we, we see him trying to, like, after, you know, he had a hand in, like, breaking down the Avengers, he's found this person to as you said like pour himself into and almost in a way like find redemption in you know like caring for peter uh almost seems therapeutic for him you know but not in a selfish kind of way but but also being that cold distant father figure that you know he, that he had you know he he doesn't know how to deal with kids and he's you know he's pretty bad at it for the first half of the film you know it's, it's mm-hmm. not just like He's not like getting anyway, as you said. You know, it's definitely it's coming from where the character was, and not like giving him like all, all this profound fatherly wisdom. You know, he's, he's, he still has to work for it. This isn't a hug. We're not that close yet. <laughs> yeah. Oh, just the line. You know, and if you died, I feel like that one's on me. And then, yeah. If any war happens, oh boy, we're gonna cry. We're gonna cry mm-hmm. a lot. Um, but the, just the other line, like uh. <clears throat> Yeah, I just wanted to be like you, and I wanted you to be better. Or my favorite one, you know, please, I'm nothing without the suit. If you're nothing without the suit, then you shouldn't have it. Which is like, is this? It's his whole arc in Iron Man three. You know, figure out am I Iron yeah. Man or is, is the suit Iron Man? And like, he's seeing the kid, you know, getting you know way too far ahead of himself. And I'll, I'll have some, I have some criticisms of uh, of Parker's arc in this film, but something in this last few that I noticed is that up until you know, up until Stark takes away the suit everything peter is doing is not so much to to protect people not so much to say you know to save people in new york it's because he wants to prove himself to tony he wants to be an avenger he wants his approval he wants to get out of you know to get out of this place of you know the place his life is in and move on to the next step and then everything he's doing is like getting out of control because he's not actually trying not i mean he wants to help and i'll say he's like bad motivations but really deep down he wants he's not doing it out of the right thing and it's not until the end you know after he's lost everything and he where he chooses to go after tombs that one last time where i believe Mm -hmm. he's actually doing it for the right reason like he's lost stark but you know this is going to cost him his girlfriend but he's still going to follow this guy and you know (laughs) and you'll get you know fight him on a plane because he's spider-man he doesn't have a suit but he has to do this and i think like that arc really kind of became apparent to me this last viewing. Um, and I think Tony is seeing that, which is why he takes this. He's like, you're, you're, you're wanting this too much. It, it has to come from a different place. 
Yeah, and like I, that just kind of goes back to to what I was saying before. Was just it's it is understanding where where Tony is in, or, or, or the the place that Tony is at right now, uh, where he is seeing these flaws that are very very that that he's intimately familiar with, and so they're they're kind of able to not to write Peter's arc around where Tony is at. Uh, but to understand how to bring these two characters together in a way that serves both of their stories, where like this this idea of of the obsession with the suit, it makes perfect sense to use Tony there, you know. But it also really makes sense uh, for for Peter as a character here, you know, the guy who's supposed to be the the neighborhood Spider Man, who's kind of like trying to reach beyond his grasp uh, and and losing sight of, of you know the the neighborhood that he he's talking about protecting and I, I actually I have had criticisms with Peter's arc before and I'm almost unsure of where I stand on it now I'm I'm interested to hear your take on it yeah let's let's talk about that now I feel like offering him a seat at the Avengers at the end of the film was a mistake because the entire film has been saying you know you're not ready for that mm-hmm. and and the, the whole thing is building towards I feel like it should have probably ended with him getting his suit back I just feel like him my enti- the whole film is saying I want to be part of the Avengers I want to be part of the Avengers and then at the end He's offered the Avengers, and he says no. I I don't really buy that. Even though he 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 w- was a hero for the right reasons in that final fight, I still don't buy that that character is going to deny his you know his life's dream. I, I I don't feel like any of the lessons he actually learned in the film would te- would make him say no. I, I it, it, that moment feels kind of contrived. And even though I love that scene, it's a hilarious scene. Robert Downey Jr., Gwyneth Paltrow, they're all <laughs> amazing in it. Yeah. Um, it just, it just I wasn't expecting to see her there. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I'm gonna talk about that, but yeah, like it just it doesn't feel quite earned. It doesn't feel quite real to the character, and it, it feels like you're kind of back. You're kind of backtracking. Like I, I, cause I, I don't think Peter at the end of this film is remotely ready to be you know on the Avengers, and but I don't know that he knows that yet. So it just it just it just just feels like the movie is kind of muddling its its theme, which is uh, I I think might become a problem I have with John Watts. I think there's a similar thing in Far From Home. We'll get to that later, but I feel like the film has a really strong theme, but that kind of just steps it back and muddles it about the end. But it wants to have everything in a nice tidy bow, um, and I feel like there aren't enough consequences. Like Peter does a lot of things, you know. He took that that hurt his friends. You know, he, he walks out on his girl, you know, his date at the at, at homecoming dance. You know, he does mm-hmm. a lot of t- like horrible crimes in high school culture, and he just gets to step right back into that. You know, he he causes a lot of mess. He splits the ferry in half, but no, he's offered the Avengers at the end. Like he does a lot of bad things and i love up until that final scene in the film the film was having consequences in his personal life and you know his, his public life uh, with aunt may with with tony but up then at the end everything's kind of fine you know he's back in, in his friend group everyone accepts him even his you know, i'm sure liz has has you know her father's going to prison so she has bigger fish to fry but still she's kind of fine with him again 
you know, she's not all that mad. And Tony welcomes it back and offers him the Avengers. It just feels like you had the consequences. You had the story at the end. You know, we have to have it happy. We have to have it really nice. We have to have it all happy and smiley. And you just welcome back. And I feel like it, it, it weakens the impact that, that the film was gearing up towards. Do you all agree? <laughs> uh, I, I, Go ahead. Well, no, I I have different thoughts on different parts of what you said, but I'll, I'll let you respond first, Drew. Okay. Um, admittedly, most of that does seem forced, especially with the uh, him being offered the role of the Avenger in the Avengers. I, admittedly, I think that scene is ultimately unnecessary because, for the most part, I think even uh. While while Peter's definitely going to want to join the Avengers at by, at the end of that movie, still because he's a teenager, he doesn't realize what he's got yet. Uh, he's I don't know if Robert Downey Jr. really need to make that far jump, or should, as I should say, Tony didn't need to make that far jump into help helping him. Definitely give him the suit back. That makes sense. Show that he's you know, show that he's you know he trusts him to take care of business in the new suit, just like he was at the end of Civil War. But, I don't know, for the rest of that, everything coming back together with, you know, the friend group and everything, even though I'm still not happy with Zendaya being called MJ, but I'll go for that. Uh, <laughs> like, Zendaya should be his only friend at the end of the movie. You know, the, the one outsider. <laughs> I, I like her the rest of the movie, and I especially like her later on in Far From Home, but uh-huh. even though that seems a little forced, too. But it's just... I don't know, there's, there's, that, there's that comic book nerd in me going, MJ stands for Mary Jane, not whatever Michelle whatever means but that like i said that i can get over that's just you know different universe but yeah i'm i i do think the the tony stark part is a little uh tony stark offering the avengers is a little forced and i can't imagine tony can just make that decision without you know asking the rest of the current avengers well all all the current avengers are gone he just there's a couple still hanging around a couple (laughs) There's his friend. There's Vision, at least. Technically Black Panther, although he wasn't really on the Avengers team. But yeah. So, for me, I think, like, big picture, like, zooming out and looking at the actual arc, I think I like it on paper. Like, if we were to just throw sentences together describing the journey like this constant desire to want this uh and is pursuing this conflict for out out of that motivation you know pursuing this conflict through the motivation of i need to be an avenger i need this bigger thing and and then being having that withheld exactly because of that and then through that pursuit of of that learning that wait i this thing that i'm pursuing is beyond where i need to be right now i need to be on the street i need to be the guy who's there for the little guy and so i like the idea of at the very end saying well now that i'm offered this thing through my journey and pursuing it i realize that's not where i need to be like i i like that i just and because that I like the, like the actual idea of it, 
I'm really I'm mostly okay with the way that it's used in the movie, but I do agree that if we're just talk, if we're talking about the actual intimate details of it, we're talking about scene by scene. I do agree that the Peter Parker of this world, despite the lesson that he learns throughout, despite the the character growth that's there, I still think that this Peter Parker would have absolutely leapt at the chance to be an Avenger still by the end of that movie. Yeah, I don't mm. think he so much learns. He just he just acts out of instinct, and that I think that should be enough for Tony Stark to give him back a suit. Well, but he like the lesson itself hasn't actually hammered itself into into his head. Like he he's he 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 acted as a true hero, but I'm not sure he quite realized that. Well, so I think what he's he's seeing is that there's there seems to be little regard you know, by, by Tony, who's kind of also representing the Avengers, like the, the hero, you know, it's, it's one specific person, but he's like the stand in for the Thors, the Captain America's these big, well, he's, he's also Tony. No, he's, he's very Tony, but the, all but the quirks. No, what, yeah, 100%. But what I'm meaning is that he, he represents the status that Spider-Man is pursuing the, the, the hero who's going to go out there and stop these, you know, world like these cataclysmic kind of processes i think he sees that that kind of character by nature of of just what they are and what they have to deal with they lose sight of of the neighborhood of the smaller day-to-day thing and he i i like the are you saying is he peter or tony in this in this sentence uh tony like the avenger character okay loses sight of the day-to-day thing like they can't be your friendly neighborhood iron man and that's not uh-huh. necessarily a fault of their own that's just they're taking on ultrons they're taking on loki's and thanos's mm-hmm. and uh, so, so you're saying this is why you think that that's why peter is turning him down yes because like you know okay. he's he's constantly calling he's like hey listen there's this vulture guy he's doing this because like vulture's threat Vulture threatens the neighborhood. Vulture threat like he's selling guns to criminals isolated to New York, isolated to Queen like to this area, you know, like they're they're not exact like there's a reason Tony's not jumping at this, you know, like, oh I've got to stop this now. It's understandable, but it because he can't do that, there is a vacancy that has to be filled. And I think because of Tony like kind of Tony and Happy kind of screening uh, Peter's calls, not really. But they were also dealing with it by set, you know, going to the FBI. Sure, <laughs> that's yeah. true. But but even so, I I do think that you know whether you know we can talk about execution and if it was handled perfectly. But what I I I think the idea itself works enough, and I think it works just enough in the movie that that through this Peter Peter sees a vacancy in the the hero to the people that he he feels he has to step in you know i mean explicitly kind of say like i well i can't remember now the the friendly neighborhood uh the friendly neighborhood line is an infinity war never mind but well no he said he says it here okay yeah that's yeah right. can't you just be a friendly neighborhood spider-man and then at the end said you know i think i'll just be a friendly neighborhood yeah. spider-man for a yeah, while so that's, yeah. so that's the thing like he i think through this process because even the climax of this film it's just like it's still very small in comparison to the other films. So I, I still enjoy, I, I appreciate the arc ending in this. There is a place for me right now. There is a, there's a hole that y'all can't fill, not by any fault of y'all's own, 
that I'm going to fill for the time being. I think that's what is best right now. Mm-hmm. I think the fact that you and I have are coming up with fundamentally different ideas of what his arc is probably says something about the movie. Maybe I don't know because I think that that's that's because like, I, I that I get what you're saying, but I don't I don't know that I got this from the film at all. But it's quite possible that's what the film is trying to go for. But I, I just feel like it, it's so kind of unclear and muddled at that in that final scene. I don't, See, I, I kind of see, although maybe this just proves your point, but I, I see it being somewhat clear. At the, like, to me, I don't really know of another way of interpreting that line of, like, I think I'll just be this friendly neighborhood, especially on the heels uh, of, like... I, I've been assuming that was simply, I'm, I, know, I now realize that I'm not ready for that, so I'm just going to wait a few years, and then I'm going to come back. See, I, I think by, by highlighting the idea of, like, the neighborhood Spider-Man, especially on the heels of a villain who is very explicitly terrorizing New York and is not bringing with him any sort of world ending events. And as well as like his, his constant frustration through the film being Tony, like in addition, Tony, not, but, 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 but Tony doesn't seem his his frustration through the film is more. Tony doesn't see me. He doesn't see what I'm doing. He doesn't see that this is important because I'm involved. I, I think it starts there just like his, where his motivation starts. But I think both his motivation and his frustration with Tony evolve into something different towards the end of like this is no longer tony's not seeing me he's like there is a very real threat and tony's not taking this this threat seriously i I think i think just like his motivation changes from i'm gonna do this you know so tony will notice me to the end of like i'm gonna sacrifice a potential relationship to stop this guy despite what that means like his motivation evolves and i think oh uh, yeah that, that, that yeah his, I, I definitely agree with that latter part that yeah. the motivation doesn't evolve but I, I think his frustration with tony is evolving hand in hand with that what do you if think I, about this true i let's say if i can just Sorry. throw in another viewpoint here because i was trying to find a way to break <laughs> oh, in there one, for yeah. a second um i would like to point out that that scene happens immediately after he just fought a giant vulture dude on top of an airplane. And he might be thinking to some degree, I don't want to do that every single day of the week now that I've done it. <laughs> Unlike the way I may have thought so at the beginning when I was just fighting, you know, Captain America, who was obviously holding his punches. Uh, this, I think to some degree he's he's got that his fight with the vulture was kind of like a shot in the a, a slap among on the faces what fighting super villains is actually like i mean yes it was a little more crazy because he's on top of an led plane in the middle of the sky which i can complain about the led plane for a long time but i won't for now <laughs> um, get there. yeah uh it's i can just imagine being up there it's like oh you know that was interesting I need a little bit of a break and perhaps just helping, you know, criminals who aren't flying and aren't doing crazy stuff for a little while might not be a half bad idea. <laughs> That's also very fair. And he is just a kid. <laughs> so now we got three completely different interpretations of this scene. It's an odd scene. I'll grant you that. Although I will yeah, say, I don't... I don't know if I have an issue with Tony offer offering it because I, because I kind of it, it because so Tony I think is maturing in this film, but he's still Tony and he still has certain levels, he's he's still reacting to things and I do like I said before I do think what he his relationship with Peter is almost therapeutic for him, um, and so I I think if he if Peter 
is mature enough to be an Avenger, then Tony Tony wins. And so I think Tony is offering offering him this position as an Avenger in the hopes of, like if Peter accepts and Peter steps up to the plate and he's everything I want him to be, then then I did it. You know, I'm finally I didn't screw up for once. So I think there's almost this hopeful expectation on Tony's part of like of kind of not being able to really see the situation for what it is, but he's seeing it for what he wants it to be. Because if if Tony, or if Peter's able to do this, then that means Tony didn't screw up for once. So I, I think it's kind of in line for, for where he's at. And I don't think that... I think the movie recognizes Tony as a character enough to know that not everything Tony says is always indicative of what the movie is saying. You know, he's not always the voice of the movie. Um, it's yeah, I kind of wish that would have been accomplished by giving him back a suit because a 16-year-old shouldn't still shouldn't have an insta-kill suit. Like True. I would like to think that the uh, the the baby monitor protocol got re-engaged before he got the suit back. Or at least somewhat. I do have one little logistical problem with that scene though. Because at this point in the MCU, the Avengers are being overseen by uh, Thaddeus Thunderbolt Ross. So shouldn't he have final say as to whether or not they let this kid who may or may not have a secret identity at this point join the team? And wouldn't he then legally have to sign the Sokovia Accords with the UN and all that mess? Well, I guess that's what was going to happen at the press conference, but I, I totally believe that Ross would use child soldiers. Like, oh, that, I would too. But <laughs> that's the most believable See, that, thing. In the that's MCU. almost more on that. I think Civil War, and that was part of my issue. One of my very few and very minor issues with Civil War was that like it's all about this. You know, we have to sign. We have to be okay with this. We need oversight. And then during a movie dealing with this conflict, like, hey, sixteen-year-old kid, you want to punch Captain America for me? There's there's very little like yeah it's it's an odd thing plus i don't think t'challa had to sign that either he's a king he doesn't have to sign anything well he's not an avenger either and he's not quite an active superhero on the world stage either true although he's he i think he actually did assign the yeah yeah he signed the accords there yeah so it's the okay i just missed that part and I, I do know in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. they had uh, What's-Her-Face sign it, too, after, when she turned back to the help the guy, good guys again. So mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think we're, we're stuck with three different interpretations of where Peter is at the end of his arc, which could be, if it was a more complicated movie, I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a flaw, but I don't feel like we're supposed to, I don't feel like this film's ending is supposed to be so like mysterious and ethereal where you can, each person can come up with their own, their own interpretation. So I think that might be a, a bit of muddling on the film's part. Well, y'all could just agree with me and then there'd be no issue at all. <laughs> it's but especially since wrong. you've got to move from so, this point into Infinity War and I don't know, I just, it, I can see him jumping to go help tony in that but if he's i don't know it it just does seem kind of weird those two scenes technically following one another yeah let's let's run through some of the other characters um you have uh ned played by jacob Batalon, who i think is just just wonderful and i'm not mistaken this is a character kind of brought in from uh what, what's Miles Morales' run? That's the that that's Ultimate Spider-Man. Ultimate well, Spider-Man. Uh, um, Ultimate Spider-Man is still... He's the second oh, Ultimate. Okay, okay. No. 
But what's his what's his series called? Is it uh Ultimate Spy? Oh, uh, it's there's uh, Spider Man Miles Morales, and then he was Ultimate Spider Man. He he took over the Ultimate line in the Ultimate Comics after that universe as Peter died. Oh, okay. That that yeah, what he said. Um, yeah, I so I, I did too much <laughs> research for into the our, my episode of Into the Spider Verse. That's the only uh, reason okay. I know that. And am I am I right in saying that this character is brought in because like there's a character that looks very much like him in the Spider Verse movie? Yeah, I can so see how, that. How do you feel about this guy? I love Ned. He is just he provides some much needed outside look than what we get with because that's a lot of the problem you have with some of the other Spider-Man movies is he's by himself. He doesn't really get the chance to talk with anybody about what's going on because he has to keep everything a secret. In this case, Ned finds out accidentally, which I also love <laughs> his reaction to first yeah. seeing Peter as spider-man it, it fits i love the characters because it gives it gives peter somebody to talk to it provides a nice little camaraderie and plus he's just stupid enough <laughs> to 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 wonder oh no what's he gonna do now <laughs> it gives that nice it, it brings kind of that high school buddy thing from the john hughes era into not he, he does kind of remind me of Cameron from Ferris Bueller. Well, so. I, I sadly have not seen it, but I will take your word for it. I know I need to watch it. <sighs> How have y'all not seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off? It's, it's one of my favorites. Before my time, and my it's before my time too, technically. But uh, I will say, I I really love the character. Um, I I very I lump him into just like my my praises for just the overall vibe of the film the the high school setting the the sense of humor that the movie has the overall tone he's he's right there he's a part of why all of that works like he's he's the most prominent face of this part of the movie and i i think their chemistry is fantastic i'm convinced that they've been friends since they were like six years old um they have yeah. a very very strong dynamic with each other they, they feel like a couple of nerd friends in the most realistic yeah. kind of way. And I really like that a lot. We should probably stop staring before it gets creepy. Too late. Um, <laughs> I, so I do, I'm going to try to make this related to Ned because I also realized I didn't really talk about the, the other thing we were talking about with, with Peter, which is just the overall consequences. Something that I think the Raimi movies excelled at maybe better than any other superhero movie except for maybe like nolan's dark knight trilogy what it what it did so well was just highlight the cost of being a superhero like the mm -hmm. cost to the personal life to friends and family um those movies put him through the ringer you know and i i think an argument could be made like if we're talking greatest superhero movie endings peter walking away from the funeral at the end of the first one has to be yeah. in that conversation because of how incredible mm -hmm. that ending is. And that ending highlights like, you know, he says it, my gift and my curse, like this, there's a responsibility that I've taken on. He has, you know, it, his superhero persona is now enemy number one to his best friend. There's really weird. There's, you know, the relationship he has with MJ has a question mark on it. Yeah, he's like he's literally walking away from her at the end. Exactly. Like there's just 
there's consequence there. Um, and I think that's what makes Spider-Man as a character so popular is because, you know, he's, he was created to be the everyman. Like, how how could one maintain this normal life, you know, with with these superhero powers? And I think we get moments of that that are pretty great here. Yeah, and I think the answer from the character is you can't, but you still got to keep going. Yeah, exactly. And I think my issue with Peter here is just overall this movie is the movie kind of says you you can like Liz there's you know going like even in DC the or the scene at DC where Liz is calling him she's like I'm not even mad I'm just I'm seriously worrying about you it's like okay wait, you've been mad at him several times before you should be mad at him right now and then at the very end you know with her saying like I just I hope you're able to figure out whatever you've got going on. And he's still got his best friend. MJ seems to be on better terms with him than ever there. He's back in his clothes. Like he's mm-hmm. kind of Oh, she's been she's been waiting for Liz to disappear the entire movie. I mean, that's oh, true. Yeah. But it's She's been crushing on him the whole time. That is also true. <laughs> but but it's just I do think that you miss the consequence. Here. Like his his life's kind of still pretty pretty great. With that being said, and bringing this back around to Ned, though, I don't want any conflict to put a wedge between them. Like that's Ned. I I want repercussions for him. I want his personal life to take a hit. I want him to understand the great responsibility that comes with this great power. Your life is often gonna suck, and it's not gonna be like. Oh, you missed some parties. You know, people should think that you're a weirdo. You should lose friends. But in reality, you're just kind of showing up and like, ah, oh, it's all right. Where you been? We've been worried. Like, I want more consequence, but I draw the line at net. Uh, do not do not damage that dynamic for me. Yeah, those chapters in Goblet of Fire where Harry and Ron are on the outs are, are too painful. Exactly. I, don't, I don't want to live through that again. I'm just saying that Ned is to Peter what Sam was to Frodo. So. There you go. I don't want that to, there there to be that big a break there. Yeah, and and speaking of those, the whole thing of consequence, like I'm normally very leery of saying, you know, this film didn't do this, therefore it's flawed. Like because you know maybe the film wasn't trying to do that. But mm-hmm. however, I think that 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 lack of consequences is a, a very legitimate critique of this film because the whole film was about consequences. You know, the whole thing was you know Peter trying to do this and all the different obstacles and we have the whole thing where he loses everything he ever wanted with you, know, Tony taking in the suit, like. It's really trying to be about consequences, and then it kind of waffles on on the at the end. Well, it gives him back everything he lost, almost except as the girlfriend he really didn't need to have in the first place. So, but he got to die. I mean, it's it's not that, but <laughs> it's not that bad yet. Um, and I'm just talking about uh, I I really enjoy uh, uh Zendaya as a as a what was her? Is it Michelle in yeah. this movie? Yeah, I'm just, call, I'm just gonna call her MJ because she's MJ in the next movie. Um, That's how I she, think of her. Yeah, you know, it's this very small character, very much to the side. But I was watching this time, and like she is—I didn't notice before—but she is totally crushing on Peter through the whole thing, mm-hmm. like constantly bringing the conversation back to him, like giving him, like constantly insulting him, which is how nerds flirt, apparently. Apparently, um, yeah, and she's—and I think she's just kind of funny. Just like if this were a '90s movie, she would be the goth kid. But now she's just the one that kind of stands at the sidelines judging everybody or going to detention to 
write people, <laughs> draw, sketch people in conflict or whatever. Um, and the, one of the funniest shots in the movie is when he goes, to, he goes to the uh, the homecoming dance. He's looking through the window, <laughs> and she goes to wave <laughs> James yeah. to the middle finger. That's, that shot like, makes like, me honestly I, laugh every single time. I forget it's coming every time because it's like. I'm just watching. Uh, yeah, he's at the homecoming. He just and, and she's like, she's not in the center of the shot. She's like off to the side. You almost yeah. don't even see it. Uh, except it's except your eyes get drawn to the bird. So uh, it is peak comedy. Uh, I love it so much. And like just like random things, like she's eating toast at Liz's party. Like yeah, what? Yeah, this party is lame. Well, then why are you here? Am I? The character should be kind of cringe sometimes, but I really, really like her. It it feels like a teenage pose, you know? She's trying mm-hmm. to find an identity, and she comes up with this incredibly lame persona of the person that judges everyone. But I, lo- I like watching that kind of fall away in the next film. Other characters, uh, you have... Sorry, uh, you have uh, Marissa Tomei playing Aunt May, and this is one of the things that I really wish we got more of in the film, because I love every scene of them together. Um... Mm-hmm but we only get like three and there's like a, a big scene where she's like, where she's kind of coming. Like, I know you sneak out every night. I know that all these things are happening in your life. Just please talk to me. And it's never revisited. It's unfortunate because that scene is so good though. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I feel like that's another place where the consequences could have really come around. And she, she's, she's absolutely wonderful. I, I, she, I love like her dress, like her dress and persona feels like it's like a mix between like the eighties and nineties and just stayed there. And yet it's not cringy as somehow she, she pulls it off. Yeah. I, I really, really like, I like everybody else is kind of thrown off at the casting initially. Um, but I think their dynamic is just like, Again, another thing that just feels so believable. People criticize the the Larbu thing as being super cringe. I'm like, okay, it's cringe, <laughs> but in the way that like she's but that's, life is that's familial familial cringe. cringe. It's allowed. <laughs> exactly. That's like that's m- mom joking with the son, trying to be funny. Like, oh, oh I Larb you. It's okay. Yeah, that's 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 exactly what that kind of character would say. And yeah. a little moment that I just I really like. At the very end of that scene, it's like, I think he larbs you. And she just kind of does that, oh, and, you know, puts her hand to her chest and that kind of fake, like, oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. I, I do love how all males in the movie are kind of in love with her as all males are in love with Mr. Tomei. Um, like, even uh, Ned yeah. has, like, a huge crush yeah. on her. When she invites him to go out and he's like, yes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the character feels very real. And I I think she's super – I think she plays the role super well. And I – I don't think, like, not having her more is, like, this fatal flaw in the movie or anything, but I do, just because of how much I enjoy her chemistry with Peter and what she adds, um, just being, like, the face of this personal life, I do wish she was in it more. Like, there's little montages of, like, trying to figure out how to tie a tie on YouTube or teach you how to dance. Mm-hmm. Like, they're, they're just so adorable together. <laughs> like, a uh, party in the suburbs, yeah. you know, I remember that, like, yeah, this is a person. This is some people wear hats, but Ned, you wear that hat. <laughs> some hats wear people. Wear. Some hats wear people, Ned, but you wear that hat. That's it. And you're just sitting there going, was that a put down or not? <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But uh, that he, t- he, t- he took it as a compliment, which is what mattered in the moment. Um, yeah. How do we feel about Liz? Uh, I feel like she's okay. Um, like, 
uh, Laura Harrier. She was she was in Black Black Klansman. I watched like the entire movie and didn't even realize that was her. Because she, she, so she's a really fantastic actress, but I feel like the character isn't terribly interesting. That's because the character is your stereotypical uh, homecoming queen, student council president, bleh character. There's just <laughs> not. It's it's an old worn out character trope that you know that I I don't really care about. Uh, but she's the most popular kid in school, so no wonder Peter's got a crush on her. See, I I think that interesting things can still be done with those kinds of characters. I just don't think that this movie really did any of those things that could have been interesting. Yeah, I don't even know that it's really to the detriment of the film all that much. Me like, neither. Like, the thing is, I'm kind of okay with the lack of interesting things going on with her, because I feel like her function, all she's supposed to do, all she's supposed to function as is be this kind of far off thing. Like this, mm-hmm. this person that you admire from afar uh, and that initially you could never be with because of uh, just your own self. <laughs> I'm just going to be. Or the person that yeah. actually likes you, but you're too yeah. stupid to realize. I'm just going to be myself. Exactly. Peter, nobody wants that. one of of my favorite lines of the movie yeah Um, but and then she transitions to the person that he can't be with because of his new responsibility like it's this person who's always I think supposed Mm -hmm. to be at a distance so I I'm kind of okay with just she's everything you would ever want and you can't have for one reason at the beginning of the film for another reason at the end so I I mean I Mm -hmm. I would never complain if we got more from the character, but that would, to me, be more of a cherry as opposed to, like, lack of something that should be there. Yeah. Um, and that brings us to her father. Um, yes. When he opened that door, like... My, oh, my I, word. Like, I was like, oh, my gosh, Vulture's got MJ. Because you know, that's what every other film, you know, has done up until that point. Mm-hmm. And... Like just what a fake out, and I and when you watch the film, like the clues are there. Um, like there's a scene where we're we're going back, we're back at um the vulture's lair, and he, after uh, you know, I think it's after the, I don't remember which scene it's after, but it's when the vulture's like, I'm gonna kill him, I'm gonna kill him, and then he looks at the TV and we see the the news broadcast about the Washington Monument, and he just kind of freaks out like for a half second before the scene cuts. Like the, I love like the clues are kind of laid out in the film before then. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it caught me completely by surprise that first viewing. Yeah, I'm sitting there watching. You know, you're riding a little on that high of you know, him getting ready for homecoming. He's going to go on a date with the girl of his dreams. He walks up to the door. Holy crap, there's the vulture. And then for a short second, you're going, wait a minute. Does he know yet that he's the vulture? Does vulture know that he's, that he's Spider-Man? Oh wait a minute! Oh, she's the—he's f- the father. Oh my word! Uh-huh. It's—it was just uh, there's just so many flurry of emotions I was feeling first it, time I watched it this. It puts you right in Peter's shoes at that moment. Yeah, because I—I I was just floored when that happened. It's like I don't even know what's happening. I am now glued until finally a rev- resolution is given, and then I'll be back with the rest of the movie. Yeah, it sounds like uh-huh. we all had the same kind of reaction because. Whenever the door opened, I thought the same thing. I was like, "Oh crap!" You know, he's got you know he's got uh, Liz, and he's gonna. I don't know. Maybe we'll go Spider-Man one style, hold her up and drop her, and make him say like, "I don't know." What <laughs> we, he's he's got <laughs> now choose <laughs> exactly like 
this must be where we're going. And when he's just like, ah, you must be Peter. Come on. I'm like, wait, what? And whenever the reveal is made yeah. clear, I was like, I am so in love with this decision right now. Like, I I was mm-hmm. enjoying the film completely up to that point. But when that happened, I was like, this is so good. I'm so excited with like what this movie is being now. Yeah. And I, I want to circle around to talk about, you know, Tombs as a character. But I think I was talking about these moments of incredible filmmaking from Watts. I think that's one of them. Because like the, the film up till now has been so you know peppy and fun and it's bouncy around and constant montages and music. And then like instantly everything stops. And that's so intentional. Like it's mm-hmm. such an intentional pull the rug yeah. out from your feet. Yeah. And we're just stuck in real time. Like there's no funny music. There's no cuts. There's no quick zooms. There's nothing. We're just stuck in real time. Should have been a record scratch at the door open. <laughs> yeah. Like with yeah. his misery. And it's, it's so freaking awkward and it just keeps going on and on and on. And then it goes into the car and the whole time, like we are just trapped. It's, it's like it's, the, the filmmaking is so unflashy, but I think it's so brilliant in the way it just grounds us in his, like just how uncomfortable everything is and the slowly ramping tension as he's figuring out. I think it's just brilliant direction and, you know, the scripting and performance and everything. Like it's just like virtuoso filmmaking, despite you know, being like some of the most simple filmmaking you can imagine visually. Yeah, it's very reminiscent to me of the of the scene in Spider Man, like the Raimi Spider Man one of him, like, "How did you get that cut?" Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, it's no, no fault on that scene. You know, as been said, I I freaking love that movie completely. But this scene though is just so captivating in the moment. The slow reveal, you know, when he's at the light and he's looking in the mirror and you can see the wheels spinning in his head. Good old Spider-Man. Oh, it's so... And that's the thing, like, we get no break from the reveal into, like, the the awkward conversations in the house as she's getting ready into the car, her trying to show him, like, oh, look at this couple, how cute. And, like, just all the way up until the, you know, like, and freaking keaton is acting his butt off in that scene you're like mm-hmm. i'm just gonna give him the you know the... is there anyone better at looking uncomfortable than tom holland no well as has been showed in memes he looks like he's always got a frog in his mouth <laughs> um which i guess it would be uncomfortable but like i i love keaton like giving the two different kind of performances like the poking at at uh, Peter until you can like confirm that that's who he thinks it is while also like being completely above reproach about it so as to like never do anything that would have drawn suspicion from Liz and you know when she gets out of the car I love that line where where he says like you know go on I'm just gonna give him the old and he kind of rolls his head or like give him the old dad talk I'm like this guy is so good and the, mm-hmm. but the whole thing of being the goofy dad which was kind of legit before that was a video he wasn't a drink bourbon scotch I'm not enough to drink right answer like He's he's having so much fun, you know. He's he's probably been waiting his entire life, you know, or, or Liz's entire life to, for this moment so that he can torture poor boys, and he's just having fun with it. I'm um, just like waving the knife around, and it's, it's yeah, just more sinister um, now. You call him you know, Pedro or whatever, um, but then yeah, as you said, the, the switch where like you like you go inside, just have the dad talk, and then he just like picks up a gun and turns around in the seat. It's like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh. And the brilliant thing about that is, you know, Peter is Spider-Man. He can grab the gun and break, you know, break uh, his face in an instant. 
but there is that magical line, you know, he's an adult, so he has the power. And Peter, you know, he's obviously he's stronger, faster. He could take it, totally take advantage of it, but he can't because this adult is, thre- is you know, this adult authority father figure is just like bearing down on him with the full horrifying weight of Michael Keaton. And he's just paralyzed. And I, I buy it. It is like you there's no question of who's in charge in that scene it's just it's kind of amazing that it works that way i just saved your life now what do you say <laughs> and that like these villains threaten the heroes all the time like we hear villainous monologues left mm-hmm. and right in these movies they're everybody's saying you know i will kill you i will go after blah 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 but when he's like i'll kill you and everyone you love like never before has a threat felt so terrifying in any of these movies to me mm-hmm. but like mo- moving into tomb's character i love that he still has that code of honor like he has his own code like mm-hmm. you save my daughter so i'm not just gonna kill you that 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 means something to me um like and all throughout the film even the climax he tries to kill him a couple times but he's also constantly giving him chances like i, I think he I, I think he respects peter in a way it just makes her a really interesting dynamic but like going back to the beginning you have this very you know salt of the earth blue collar working class character who who was essentially screwed over by Tony Stark attempting to help him like it's like you know you have this like very cold distant bureaucratic you know quote unquote helping that's you know but it's not actually in the community you know it's going back to what you're saying about you need the neighborhood the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man because the the corporate superheroes can't actually see what the people need in that way mm-hmm. um so you know, he's screwed over and now you know, he turns to crime and the the whole time is you know it's about this is providing for my family you'll keep he's not, he's not trying to go big you'll keep him under the radar and like he's definitely a bad guy like he might not have tried to kill Lo- uh, is it Logan Marshall Green is that his yeah. name like he might not have tried to kill him but he's not all that sad that he did or, or probably not, you know not sad at all um like you know, he he definitely has that dangerous edge but there's it never enough to really lose a connection with him. like I, I, he's always you always kind of there with him even though when he's doing bad things i would agree with that yeah <laughs> I mean, i'd like to add something but i can't think of anything <laughs> yeah, i i feel like they really set the tone for the character or just they they clued you in to the fact that this we're going to have a good villain again by Opening with the villain. I really, mm-hmm. really love the opening to this movie. Yeah. Uh, establishing realistic, believable motivations, establishing a character, uh, uh, you know, making the transition from that into him actually flying. The shot of him flying in as the vulture, I also really, really love. Despite the fact, like, I think sometimes the visuals to this movie look a little flat. Every now and then there are shots where, like, movement, it's, just, it's, it's super cool. And that opening of him flying around is one of them to me. Um, I, I just think by opening with this character, that's the first thing that this movie does super right with this villain. And also, it to me, uh, going back to the Raimi movies, it's like they they looked to those movies and under and, and like found out what made those villains. Green Goblin and Doc Ock to me are like god tier villains. Like yes, Although I think are, I think he's kind of like Sandman from the third one. Yeah, well, he's, he I, is more like Sandman. I would agree in terms there. of like just his use, but I mean, I, I mean, in terms of like just effectiveness as villains, and like what he, what they do, like the the lesson that it seems like they learn is like 
make it relatable, make him a character and like find some way because these aren't like these cosmic threats. I think when they are personal to the lead on these smaller stories, I think that goes a long way. You know, having uh, the goblin being Harry's dad, having Doc Ock be Peter's mentor. Now having him be the father of this girl that he likes, there's something about, you know, if we can't have these villains bringing in alien spaceships and, you know, like being the head of these huge corporations, since these are street level things, it kind of, it lets you work the villain into the personal life of the hero in a more organic way. And I think that just makes the connection. You know, this isn't some rando blue collar guy who's pissed off. He is that. And I do, even with that, I think the character would work really well. But with that reveal, like it gives you that shock, that surprise that works so well, but it just, it adds that extra complication into the narrative that I think works so well. Um, And yeah, like he's, he's a human being there. He has his own motivations. He's existing in scenes that isn't just, Hey, here's this, here's a shot or a little, you know, two minute scene of the villain still being evil. Here's him doing his plan. All right, back to the leads. Like, no, no, here's this human being. This is a person. And, and mm-hmm. speaking of that, him being a person, like I love that his his villain crew has their own established dynamic. Like he got the the ne'er do well who's always late and just constantly making stupid decisions. You got the nerd guy who really wants to make that vacuum, you know, high altitude vacuum seal. Um, you have the super scary and creepy, you know, head head henchman. Like the the, the dynamics. I told you not to look at my phone. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> They feel like real people. Um, but I feel like Toombs is kind of like a Walter White character. Yeah. I don't like – I think he's, he's he's like caught before he gets you know as, as corrupt as Walter White did. But I think he probably could have gone there. He's got that very you – know, obviously very you know, righteous, you know, I, I need to take care of my family. But I think you know, it's slowly being twisted and corrupted to where it's you – know, the, the thing that he was doing for his family is becoming a thing of its own. You know, just, that's just for him. You know, a, a matter of pride in a way. Although, like, just the fact that he was willing at the end you know, to give it all up, you know, you know just, it's the one last heist. It's, it's, you know, he doesn't, he never just comes across as a mustache twirling guy. He, he always feels very realistic in the moment, just like, this is what I got to do right now to, for it to work out. If I, you know, if I have to kill you, Peter, I will right now. But, you know, five minutes later, I might let you go if I, you know, if I, if I get what I want. It's like, he's a person. He's, it's, it's, it's so rare. I think Zemo is kind of on that level as well, but for them, for most of Marvel, they're just these gigantic yelling maniacs, and you just you don't care. The last thing I would say about it, like, if I had an issue with it, I do. I hate him killing Logan Marshall Green. Um, on one hand, it's because I really love. I'm a I'm a low key Logan Marshall Green fanboy. I think I really really like him as an actor. I I did I did I didn't like him before. Like I, I thought he was bad in Prometheus, but then after seeing uh what what's the what's the, uh, the upgrade upgrade he was he was fantastic. Yeah, I'm 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 interested to see more from him. Mm-hmm. I uh but he, I I wish and I Shocker was always one of my favorite villains as a kid, and I was like ah oh, right. Shocker's here. And I was like, <laughs> oh no, well, Come different on. Shocker. Well, yeah, because technically the first Shocker's not the actual shocker from the comics but the second one is yeah but even he doesn't look like the shocker but you you say he never comes off as mustache twirly the only time he ever and this wouldn't be a mustache twirly moment but this would be like the same kind of moment that you'd see from a mustache twirly kind of villain is i hate that this very down-to-earth like you said salt of the earth kind of relatable blue-collar dad 
like just disintegrates somebody. And he's like, oh, I thought that was the anti gravity gun. Huh? I'm like, no, you just you just melted a man. Like, and it was. It'd be one thing if like if I, what we, I, got... we also have to believe he would willingly murder a kid mm-hmm. and not feel too yeah, bad but about it. The thing it, is that so. that moment would work so like those threats work so well because it doesn't feel like it's like here's the line to laugh at. Like what what really ruined it for me here is just how flippant it was. It's mm-hmm. just like he's just kind of does the comedic like eyes looking back and forth like uh oh. I'm like, we just had him murder somebody in cold blood with no remorse, all flippantly. And, like, the net gain was, like, a joke that wasn't even that funny. <laughs> no, don't do that. That's my only real criticism. Because it does, it makes him, like, if you can do that to somebody, just, like, melt them right in front of you. And then kind of, like, like, oh, I didn't mean to do that. And move on. Like, okay, you're no longer, like... <laughs> you still you still are like a sympathetic villain. That's just because everything around you is so good, but this scene kind of makes you a psychopath. Yeah, and I, I am very interested to see what they do with this character because, like, I could see him coming back as like a straight up antihero. Like, I could even see him coming back as somebody like of a, a weird father figure for Peter. Like, I feel like they kind they really connected in a weird way. Peter saving his life, I think, really, you know, saving his daughter's life and saving his own life. Like, I feel like they, he's really earned his respect. And I'm very intrigued. I, I, they, they better not waste that potential because, like, I could see him coming back as some kind of anti-hero figure, like ally, enemy, maybe like a kind of a Venom-like thing mm-hmm. where he's he's there in the shadows. He could, you know, one minute he could be like actual father figure that, that Peter needs in a certain moment or the next he could be fighting him. Like, I think that's a very, very interesting dynamic they have set up. Yeah, I... you know, Just because they didn't use it in the, the direct sequel doesn't mean they won't, but all, Scorpion was, like, is my favorite... Uh, like, well, he was my favorite Spider-Man villain as a kid. From and what, so what is this, saw, the, the 90s animated show? Oh, yeah, he's freaking awesome there. Okay. I had the toy oh, and yeah. everything. Flexible tail. It was awesome. Um, Scorpion was legitimately scary in the 90s show, at least to me yeah. as a child. So Holy cow, he was so cool, too. Coolest he was scary in Spider-Verse. So. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, really I forgot he was Spider-Verse in there, but yeah. But, uh, but anyways, I they there's so many things that they need to capitalize on in that post-credit. Like, that's one of my favorite post-credit scenes, just because I'm like, it's it's a nice little character moment. It's not just like this, here's what we're doing next. It's like, oh, look, he's... He didn't give him up. Like I, mm-hmm. I really like where they could go with this character, and also the guy who uh, who they hired as Scorpion. He plays Nacho in Better Call Saul, and he's freaking phenomenal as an actor. So please don't waste any of that. Yeah. Um. Also, his design, Vulture's design, is fantastic. Like the the, the character in the comics is, I t- I I think it looks horrible and the. So just hilariously bad. Yeah. Um, but like they made it look really cool. Like they, they still kept the the the, the fur collar flight suit. And, oh, I love mm-hmm. the fur. The green collar. eyes. I think it's a fantastic. And the the physicality of the wings in the fight scenes is really cool. Um, like it's it's, it's like it's big, but never kind of unbelievable. Like you could, I can believe the wings could actually do everything they do, and like using them like fingers. It's it's I think it's all really well done. Mm-hmm. I agree. I kind of want to bring up the 
what I consider to be the best bit of fan service in this movie. That being uh, Aaron Davis showing up there in two scenes. Oh, yeah. Considering when I watched this movie originally, I knew very little about Miles Morales. And then they straight up say, oh, yeah, he's around here somewhere. We just don't have anyone hired to play him yet. But here's his uncle, the Prowler. But sadly, since we've got since we've got the uh, Spider-Verse, where he's probably not going to show up in the MCU, which kind of and... very sad. Hold out hope. Come on. Believe in yeah, something, man. Miles could show up at any time. I mean, technically, Venom could show up at any time, too. Ten years from now, like when Pete went out, Holland's like a thirty-year-old. That would be a really cool dynamic to see him. You know, yeah. Now, now Have in the pass on, role. pass on the mantle, which is essentially what happened in the Ultimate Comics, anyway. The the last person that I'll I want to highlight is I kind of already did. I love the teacher. I, <laughs> which one, I Martin Star? Do what? Martin Star or the Hannibal Buress? Uh, Martin Star. And you, um, do you, he he has he's a cameo or I, I don't know if it's a cameo but it's like a role in Incredible Hulk. He's the guy that yeah yeah who um, holds up the pizza. Yeah, he's the guy who bribes the pizza. Um, I'm upset that he had to share screen time in Far From Home. I did not really <laughs> find the other teacher funny. Uh, I love him. I love the, just the sense of humor that he's. One of my favorite lines is always like, ah, I should have written it down, but it's whenever Peter shows back up. And he's like, uh, sorry, it's too late. You think you think you just come back and we'd welcome you back? Welcome back, Peter. Yeah. Uh, uh, the funniest line in the movie is, you know, I couldn't bear to lose a student on a school trip. Again. Not again. Just <laughs> 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 look at his eyes. Like, I, I like literally laugh out loud every single time, even though I know it's coming. His delivery is so great. And I also love it. I forget what the student actually says, but somebody says something while they're like practicing and the kid rings the bell and makes fun <laughs> of him. And he's like, what have I told you about using the bell for comedic effect? Like he's, it's just the way they use him. Like just super sparingly, but with just really great lines. Yeah. My favorite line, my favorite version of that is when they're on the bus headed to Washington D.C. and they're answering questions, and that kid just answers, "Flash is wrong." <laughs> yeah, the, the dynamic of the uh, of the the uh, what's 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 the what are they doing? Uh, the decathlon. 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 Yeah. Or Academic that, decathlon. That thing. Yeah. <laughs> like that's a really fun dynamic. Um, and how everyone just totally dunks on Flash, and she deserves it, so mm-hmm. it works. <laughs> uh, my fa- one of my favorite little like lines that's just kind of happening in the background that you could just miss if you're not paying attention is they're like all walking away from the bus, walking towards the Washington Monument, and you kind of hear Flash be like, what I tell you guys? We didn't need Peter. <laughs> and someone's just like, Flash, you didn't answer anything correct. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I do want to move on to my one of my things, my... my Aside from, I think, some of the, the arc issues with Peter's arc, my biggest issue with this film is that I think John Watts' direction works very well for like 90% of the movie. But however, I think all the action in the film is pretty dang flat. Um, I just like it's like you mentioned the, the, the ATM fight. And I think that's really kind of uh, kind of a, a symbolic of all the issues with the films like that scene is shot almost entirely in like static shots, like every movement, and it's all super like just way too close. Yeah, like every movement is a cut, and it's just there's just like tripod point here, you do something, then we'll cut over here, then we'll cut over here. It's just like, and the geography is another well laid out. It gets a little better when you move into bigger action sequence, but I still think he's very bland. Like the, there's no, there's never any exciting camera movement. It's just 
Like there's no like between this film and Far From Home, we still have yet to have like a single epic web, you know, web slinging sequence. Like, you know, there's insane, like even from like 2000 with Spider-Man, the, the shots mm-hmm. of him just swinging through the streets. And no matter how many times you've seen it, it gets your blood pumping. I've never felt a moment like that in this movie. And just uh, I think like the final finale action sequence, uh, I, I the idea of like the strobing plane is really cool. And there's an incredible strobe fight sequence in Incredibles 2. So it can be done well here. Yeah. It's just kind of an eyesore, unfortunately, for me, at least. I find that entire plane cloaking it against. Obviously, it's not doing any any good job of cloaking while they're still in New York City. But even when they're in the clouds, I just can't see how. I just hate that LED plane <laughs> because it looks ugly <laughs> and it looks impractical for what they're doing. It's an interesting concept, but it's it just seems impractical for it. it that does, does not seem like a Tony Stark solution. That's the best way I know how to put it. It's a that. Happy Hogan solution. Very much a Happy Hogan solution, but it's not a Tony <laughs> Stark solution. I would have assumed Tony would have been in charge a little bit of moving I'm, down. I'm imagining a happy, like scrolling through. Oh, we got an invisible plane. Yeah. We'll do that one. Yeah. Plus they're only going upstate. You don't need a plane to go that far. You could have just shipped everything on 18 wheelers. When does Stark tech ever do anything? Half. I know. I know. It's <laughs> just, I'm sitting there going, does the plane even need to be cloaked? You're only going upstate. It's a half-hour <laughs> flight at best. It's it's a weird thing. I get stuck on these stupid little logistical things. I, I, I do like how that, that heist was kind of set up the entire film with uh the, the nerdy criminal guy like always like trying to going for you know, the high altitude vacuum seal. Like it, it was kind of it was always there in the background, despite you know not knowing exactly what it was. And setting up, you know, moving pretty mm-hmm. early on in the movie. Yeah. Uh which I, then I, does raise the question, who bought Avengers Tower? Hammertech. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm kind of hoping we find out it's the Baxter building later on, but that's just me. Oh, that'd be, that'd mm. be a cool way to integrate them. Uh, between, uh, so on paper, like, that scene should be cool. Like, I don't mind the whole, like, invisible jet kind of thing. It's just whenever you actually see it, it's, I mean, I, I kind of agree with you. Like, it's just kind of an eyesore. Like, I I don't like the way it's presented visually. I think the way they use light in this scene, it's instead of, like, popping on the screen, the light really just muddles everything up. Yeah, because there's like, no mm-hmm. contrast. Like, both characters are super dark against a dark background. You can't see what's happening. Yeah, it's, so it's just, like, the the lighting to me looks off. It makes everything look all blended together. The, the action itself is isn't really staged super well. And then even the subsequent fight after the crash, I'm like, this is, uh, I think that one's better. It's, it it gets some brutality in there, like the claws on his chest. I like that. I really, I like that a lot, but, but that's like the smaller, to me, that's like the smaller moment that happens after a fight, like, or like in the middle, like that's one of those little nice punchy moments during the middle of a well choreographed fight. Whereas, mm-hmm. like, that's my takeaway from the scene because outside of that, like, I, I think the the fire he does a better job with the lighting with the fires, but even that's not used to its full effect to me. I'm like, man, you're you're fighting in the in an aircraft rubble and there's fire everywhere. Make this look cooler than it does. Give me Zack Snyder on the phone. Exactly. Yeah, I I don't think he, I don't think watch he just doesn't have any visual flair like at all. 
and it works fine when you're doing high school drama and even like it's just you know fun peter parker flipping through the the streets but when you want to have this big blockbuster action sequence he they're added like they're not i I, sam called them atrocious in the feedback i don't agree there I, i just think they're Kind, they're adequate, but just very underwhelming, which kind of is kind of thrown into sharp relief when you have like Sam Raimi doing his Sam Raimi craziness, which is amazing. And I also I think that the action sequences in the Amazing Spider-Man films are actually pretty solid. Yeah, barring a couple ones in 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 the second one, but so it's we've seen so much awesome Spider-Man action to have something just so serviceable with a character that is so agile. And so, like, just created to, to, so that we could have awesome choreography to not get any of that is disappointing. I will say I do enjoy the Washington Monument scene. The the way scale is presented there. Mm-hmm. Being with him at the very top, seeing it in the theater, I kind of had that, like, the you know, the feeling of butterflies. Mm-hmm. Um, just the the way they handled uh, depth there. He... His camera work looks cooler probably at that point than at any other point in the movie. Used like wide lenses and the whenever he's like at close to the very top and we get that uh helicopter shot that kind of circles around where everything is uh everything's out of focus in the background, but it's just like with every little movement of the camera, huge portions of the city are coming into view and huge portions are leaving. Like he films that scene to me in a really interesting way. And just the little shot of, of him kind of peeking over and you just see how far down he is. I like all of that. And him flipping over the helicopter. Like that scene functions really well to me, but that's kind of the exception. Yeah. I just, so uh, before we wrap up, I, I, I do want to say one, one uh, real quick positive thing. So we don't end on negativity. Uh, that, that final scene is just delightful well, with, uh, with uh, Tony and Pepper is just delightful, you know, <laughs> especially, you know, seeing that he was able to get back together with her, mm-hmm. you know, in civil war, they were broken up and just the whole thing about, you know, uh, well, we, we have all the press here and we don't have an Avenger. Well, you got that ring happy? You kid, I've been carrying this thing for six years or eight years. Eight. <laughs> just uh, the look on Pepper's face. She's like, I can't believe you're doing this. It's that just- scene was so pleasant to me because it was like two moments of relief. It was like the the contextual relief of, yay, Tony got be- like got together with Pepper. They've been my favorite like relationship. And then this external relief of like, yes, they got Gwyneth back. Uh, so it's yes. just like I'm breathing two different sides of relief at the same time. Just totally like, yo, he actually made a really mature choice. Surprised the heck out of both of us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just delightful. The whole movie's freaking delightful. All right, let's let's start moving toward a close. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about the musical score by Michael uh, Michael Giacchino. I believe I believe that's how you pronounce it. I've heard like so many pronunciations. But I, I think, have no idea. I've heard Giacchino. More I've heard that me. too, but I just listened to an interview. I think I'm pretty sure he said Giacchino. Um, oh, okay. Well, never. So mind. that's what I'm sticking to right now. I'm probably wrong. Uh, I'm just going to call him Michael. What? <laughs> I'm just going to call him Michael and not bother with the last name. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, how do you guys feel about this score? I can't think of a Michael, Michael, whatever his last name is, score, and not be happy with it because I can't even think of one I have disliked. I think mm-hmm. he handles this very well. You do get that nice, uh, uh, 
cover of the original Spider-Man theme song there yeah. during the opening logos, which... Oh, I love that part. Forever, I thought forever it was just from the crazy violin lady in the first Spider-Man movie. I, I, no, I that it was is... A couple years ago that I realized it was actually from the cartoon. It's from the 60s cartoon is what it was made for, for its oh, opening really? theme. I, I like how he hints at those th- that theme again over and over throughout the throughout the score for his own uh, Spider-Man theme. It fits so perfectly in that. And it reminds me a lot of his Rogue One score where he hints at the Star Wars theme throughout and never plays it till the very end. I haven't listened to the Rogue One score. I need to sit down and listen to it. I mean, I just watched Rogue One like about two hours ago. That's why it's on my mind. Ah. But yeah, it's it's just so... It's one of it's I'm, it's one of his best scores in my opinion. But then he's got so many good ones. What about you, James? Anything to say about it? Um, so I'll say, I'm kind of speaking out of ignorance because I haven't listened to the score in isolation. <laughs> I really don't like sounding negative. In, in the movie, there's never really a point that it stands out to me. Yeah, it's it, the mix does not do it any favors. It's okay. So I'm I'm assuming it's way better than I. think think it is because in the moment aside from like the opening with that rendition of the theme which i absolutely love i can't really like i i just think about the songs used in it great songs oh yeah like i mean i've uh the underdog by spoon has been a favorite of mine for forever and whenever they use that during that initial high school montage just made me super happy um so it's yeah i Having not listened to it by itself, I can't really speak to it. But like I said, I'm going to assume it's awesome because I'm a huge fan of Giacchino. I really love his Doctor Strange theme. His Star Trek theme is like up there with the best of the best ever. Mm-hmm. And I will defend his Rogue One theme till the day I die. Like he has, he introduced like three new themes in that movie that are some of my favorite Star Wars themes. So I'm going to assume it's great. Yeah, it's a solid score. I don't love it. Like his his new Spider Man theme. Is only or motif or whatever. It's only six notes. It's really weird. Like it, it just plays. It's like the same six notes that kind of pop up in various places in different tracks. It sounds a bit like the Dark World theme. Like it's. I think it's a little forgettable. But what one touch I do really like is that Vulture's theme is like a dark mirror of Peter's. Like it's almost like very similar note structure, just played like more deeper and kind of scarier. So I thought that was really cool. Um, the thing I like about Chino is that after guys like Brian Tyler and Christoph Beck, I, I just feel like their music from moment to moment just often feels very generic, despite occasionally having good themes. Like when I listen to a, a, a Chino score, it's it's so much more creative and lively and playful. Like there's just all these instruments you wouldn't normally think of. He's not just like blaring on the brass and the strings like so many other uh, composers do. So like it's a much more fun. And it's just a lot more life and personality than most MCU scores. Um, a couple of tracks I do want to highlight is uh, The World is Changing is this really kind of fun. It has kind of a ticking motif. It's really propulsive. Um, there's like a little bit of danger kind of growing underneath it. Uh, academic decommitment. Uh, it's really bouncy, fun, very impatient uh, while kind of weave, weaving in a bit of the, the, the classic Spider-Man theme from the cartoon, but also his 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 own theme. Monumental Meltdown, a very fun action piece of music with the with the, his uh, theme woven in really well, and finally a uh, Vulture Clash, which is just the really big, scary Vulture theme, like completely domineering, um, really intense musical moment that I quite enjoyed. Uh 
Yeah, so thoughts of the score, I think it's 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 probably on the lower end for for Chichino for me, but I think right around the middle for MCU scores. Um, all right, so moving into our star rating and ranking, a little good to you first, Drew. Uh, what do you give this film out of five stars, and how do you rank the MCU up till now? I'm gonna give this about four stars. It's just a fun movie. I I've, I enjoy watching. It's one of the to me, it's one of the highlights of going back through the MCU, especially after uh, with a uh, after you get past uh, Dark World. But uh, yeah, I, I would uh, rank uh, my ranking with this um, with this at the end would be uh, I start off with Civil War. Oh yeah. Then I hit Avengers, then Guardians of the Galaxy uh, Volume One, Spider Man Homecoming, uh, Captain America Winter Soldier, Ant Man, uh, Captain America First Avenger, uh, Doctor Strange, Iron Man Three, Iron Man Two, Thor, then Iron Man. Then Ultron, and then uh, Thor: Dark World and Hulk kind of clash, depending on how I feel that day. At the bottom, so I like the top half better than the second half. <laughs> That's well, it's. I'll admit when I made this list, I was going, okay, is this better or worse than Iron Man One? Is this better or worse than this? Or is it better than Hulk? And just all the way down the list and that's just why hulk ends up down at the bottom just because i like so many other movies more than hulk fair enough except for dark world dark world i just despise yeah that's fair uh what about you james uh so i i give it four out of five as well i i just really really love this movie like aside any complaints i have aside from him killing shocker uh most of my complaints don't set in until after the fact. Like, after it's over, I'm like, well, I kind of wish they did this, and I wish they did this. But it's like, whenever I'm hitting play, and I'm just with the movie, I'm having, like, Guardians of the Galaxy levels of fun with it. Like, I'm just constantly smiling. The The montages are just such a joy to watch. Like, <laughs> the guy who's trying to get back into his own car and everything and and him just being caught in the middle of this neighborhood yelling at him it's like this movie is consistently such a good time and such a joy that like i what i love about it just hugely overshadows my my issues with it uh which is kind of amazing considering my issues with it you know revolve around the the action which should be should be bigger of a of an issue than it is for me, but it's just I I have so much fun that it it seems smaller. So yeah, I'm I'm doing four out of five um, for my rankings so far. I've got number one Winter Soldier, number two The Avengers, number three Civil War, number four Guardians of the Galaxy, number five Iron Man, number six Spider Man Homecoming, number seven Thor, number eight Iron Man three, number nine Captain America, number ten Age of Ultron, number eleven Doctor Strange. Number twelve, Ant Man. Number thirteen, Iron Man two. Uh, I did. I changed back. I went number fourteen, The Incredible Hulk. Number fifteen, Volume uh, Guardians Volume two, and number sixteen, Thor: The Dark World. All right. So uh, I also give it four stars. You know, it's just a deeply likable and pleasant movie to watch. Um, yeah, you know, I, I actually think this latest viewing did soften a couple of my critiques, though some of them still remain. Uh, so for the ranking is Captain America: Civil War at number one, number two, The Avengers, number three. Guardians of the Galaxy, 4, Captain America Winter Soldier, 5, Iron Man, 6, Thor, 7, Age of Ultron, 8, Doctor Strange, 9, Spider-Man Homecoming, 10, Ant-Man, 11, Iron Man 3, 12, The Incredible Hulk, 13, Captain America the First Avenger, 14, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, 15, Iron Man 2, and 16, Thor the Dark World. And going into the film's legacy, uh, I feel like there's been 
in the last, like at, when it first came out, there was this just groundswell of love for the movie. Like this is the Spider-Man we've always waited for. But I feel like in the last few years, maybe kind of since Far From Home, but even a little before that, there's kind of like been a growing discontent with this version of Spider-Man. Have y'all thought that at all? I think a lot of the reason that people were saying this was the Spider-Man we're all been looking for is the minute the MCU was getting going good and it looks like it was actually going to be successful, especially after Avengers, getting the original ones that that, uh, Sony and Fox still had the rights to was like on a lot of people's mind, especially Mm -hmm. after uh, they finagled uh, Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver into Age of Ultron. Uh, To me... Uh, I mean, I do like him better than Andrew Garfield. I'm not really sure how I feel with him next to Toby Maguire. I'm not. Re- it's kind of even on that for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's. I don't dislike him. It's just now that he's no longer in Tony's shadow, I'm kind of curious where he's. They're going to go with the character. I mean, admittedly, I don't. I'm not a big fan of Far From Home, but there were some things in there I like show, showing his growth in that one. So, yeah, yeah. For me, it's like I, I haven't exactly noticed a shift in terms of like I, I haven't seen people think one thing and then think another. I saw like effusive praise from everybody who had cared to see it, and I, th- uh, yeah, to go out and watch it. And I think there were a lot of people who just weren't interested, but didn't talk about it and then i think into the spider-verse is what invited people who weren't really big not only on holland but just on the mcu in general because Mm -hmm. of how amazing spider-verse is i think that invited those people even more into the spider-man conversation Mm. so i haven't i haven't noticed so much of a well this person thought this and now they think this i just i've noticed a lot of people who were previously silent now talking about what they don't like so I think most of the people who loved him still love him. And I th- I think with everything we saw with the Sony deal kind of like falling through, just like oh, the yeah. outpour of memes and stuff, like there was outrage, you know, we need him back. Um, to me, that like if there were any question as to what the overall like general consensus is, I, I still see by far just more love uh, than anything. I just, I, I'm only really thinking about it now, but... I really do think that it's it's Spider Verse that's kind of brought up uh, more people who previously just really didn't go out of their way to say anything about it into the conversation. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting perspective, huh? I never thought about that way. Um, yeah, it just it just feels feel weird, like the 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 absolute effusive praise, and now it feels like there's a lot more people whining about it now. Uh, <laughs> The re- another reason why I, th- I see more love, though, is because more than ever, like, it, it happened around Homecoming, but I think we've reached, like, just this fever pitch of people being like, it's time to revisit the Raimi movies. There's, like, a lot of constant It's just never embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, like, yes, exactly. Let's revisit those movies. It's been too long anyways. I'll watch them again. I agree, and it helps that the Raimi movies are hitting that wave of nostalgia looking back because they're now nostalgic movies in comparison mm-hmm. to you know, the modern stuff. It's like, well, this is the modern version. And then there's that Andrew Garfield guy that, eh. But it also helps you got, you know, like he said, Spider-Verse sitting there going, okay, this is definitely what you can do when you play with the universe and play with Spider-Man. 
much like the, the original Spider-Verse comic did. It's just unfortunate that those people who are looking back in nostalgia are now being like, well, actually, this isn't really that great talking about the Raimi films. But I bring that up to say, like, how anyone can how anyone can say that with Willem Dafoe and uh, (laughs) I can't think Alfred Molina. Thank you. As the two greatest villains in Marvel history is beyond me. Whatever your feelings on any other character, I can understand. But those are the greatest villains we've ever had. Yeah. I freaking love them. Uh, But I bring that up just to say, because those conversations are almost exclusively being had in comparing those to Holland. And (laughs) I hate it because I love Holland. So I, you know, I, I don't want to like attack him, but I've always got to show up to defend my babies. It's like, it's a reverse of the conversation that happened. Oh, Holland's amazing. And Toby, oh my gosh, that was trash. That happened like, you know, three years ago. So, what goes around comes around. Eh, people are flitting, but flippant. Yep. Uh, all right. So that was our review of Spider-Man Homecoming. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, again, I'd like to ask you to please head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. If you want to like us on Facebook, we're there as Franchise Fatigue Podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, we're on both of those sites as at Franchised Pod. And if you want to find our other episodes, you can go to FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And where can people follow you, Drew? Uh, you can follow me at uh, ggeorge759 on uh, Twitter when I remember to post things there. Plus, uh, you can find me on Facebook under Drew Dodgen. And if you want to hear more of my thoughts on Spider-Man, specifically Spider-Verse, we do have an episode on that over at the Cellcast uh, we did back in September. Uh, we had a lot of fun with that particular episode. Uh, right now, we're in the middle of uh, Miyazaki and Ghibli month. Uh, mm. The episode we that came out this last Saturday was over his directorial debut with uh, Lupin the Third, The Castle of Cagliostro. That movie is so freaking fun. Yes, it is one. It actually inspired me to go back and watch the uh, the show it's based on, uh, and it's been it's been fun. That's the CGI trailer that just came out. I've actually that that inspired me to go back and uh, I actually went and found the the uh, the original series on Amazon. So I'm gonna go back watch and watch that now. Yeah, I'm watching it over on uh, Crunchyroll. So, but back, back to your show. <laughs> yeah, also back on my thing. Uh, tomorrow night we're recording our episode on uh, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, which should come out this coming Saturday. Uh, when does this episode come out? It should be two weeks. So we're like an episode, two weeks. Like- okay, so by then we should either be finishing up Castle, should be putting out Castle in the Sky or Grave of the Fireflies. I'm not entirely sure which. And then we're Are ending you doing this- the whole filmography. Whole Eventually. Filmography? Eventually. Nice. We're not doing it in one go. I'm, oh, okay. I'm not forcing him to do the whole thing. But I am trying to go in order. Uh, so we're ending this month with uh, My Neighbor Totoro. So that we can okay. at least end Miyazaki month on a happy note. Uh, <laughs> and what, what, what's, what's the website for your... your uh, Thecellcast.podbean.com uh, When you are spelling that out, cell is spelled C-E-L. There's only one L. I regret spelling it that way, but that's how the word is spelled. Uh, mm. But yeah, that's where we're at. And where can people follow you, James? Uh, you can follow me over on Letterboxd. I am there as JL Hamry. It's J L H A M R I. And you can follow uh, the both of us over at the Outer Rim, a Star Wars group. We are both admins along with some friends over there. Uh, we are right, well, not even in the middle. We're coming, uh, we're in the latter half of a Star Wars marathon now. Um, in the original trilogy leading up into the rise of Skywalker. So if you love Star Wars and you're excited about it and you want to talk positively about it, um, then definitely join us over there because 
with Rise of Skywalker and uh, the Mandalorian, Mandalorian just around the corner. Oh, and man, I'm looking Fallen forward to that. Order and Rebel or uh, um, the Resistance and Clone Wars next year. There's, despite what some people may say, it is a very good time to be a Star Wars fan. So feel free to join us over there. And I'm also on Letterboxd, and there's Gabriel Green. Um, you can find me on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green, and I also have a YouTube channel where I put out these up. Uh, film-based music videos uh, called Greenery 01. You can check that out if that sounds interesting. So for next week, uh, we will be talking about Thor Ragnarok. I don't think I've seen this one since the theater, so I'm very interested to see how oh, how, wow. how it feels post-Infinity War and Endgame because a lot has happened to that character since then. Yeah. So until next week, we will see you in the sequel. You deserve that. You're a criminal. Bye, Mr. Criminal. Bye.